0: Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Gaskell, and I'm a pro-director here. Uh, On behalf of the school, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the campus and to chair this lecture by Nemet Shafiq, Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. It's a great pleasure to introduce distinguished speakers at any time but it's a particular pleasure today because Nemut is an alumna of the London School of Economics. So this is a welcome back rather than just a welcome. Nemutt did the uh, MSc in Economics. Now this afternoon's lecture is hosted by the Department of Economics and it's one of uh, many public lectures that we have in the school in the evenings. Details of these are uh, available on the school's website, and some of the forthcoming uh, speakers of note are the US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, the economist Jeffrey Sachs, and Viktor Orban, the uh, Prime Minister of Hungary. So if you're interested in those, do check the website. So, as I said a moment ago, it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Nemet Chefi here today. Prior to her role at the International Monetary Fund, she was Permanent Secretary of the Department for International Development here in London. She was Vice President of the World Bank, and she's also held academic appointments at the Wharton Business School and at Georgetown University. She was named Woman of the Year for Global Leadership and Global Diversity in 2009. Now, Nevet's speech this afternoon could not come at a more timely moment given the continued global economic turbulence, the challenges faced by policymakers in the UK, in the Europe, and the rest of the world. Check the website, and the European summit doesn't appear quite to have sorted out all the problems but uh, maybe Nemet will uh, give us some insights into what might be agreed now here's a bit of my speech that I have no idea what it means but for those Twitter users in the audience (laughs) the hashtag for this event (laughs) appears to be hash LSE And then economy. Reminds me of Groucho Marx. A child could do it. Bring me a child quickly. (laughs) And as usual, after the lecture, you will have a chance to put uh, your questions to Nemet. So uh, without further ado, I invite Nemet to give us her views on the world economy how did we get here, and where on earth are we going?
1: Thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. It's wonderful to be back at the LSE. Um, I have to say, in my day, um, it was a lot more scruffy. uh, And uh, our only entertainment was squeezing into Wright's Bar, which was smoke-filled always at the time, to get the odd cappuccino. And uh, these days, it's far more elegant, far more swish. And I suspect cappuccinos are far more common. I, uh, I remember working very, very, very hard during my MSc in economics. In fact, probably, I always used to say it was I worked harder than any other time in my life, although the last six months at the IMF could possibly rival the MSc. <laughs> um, but my training at the LSE served me incredibly well. Um, I still have my notes from my MSc course sitting in my office at the IMF, and I periodically refer to them. And I'm shocked at what I used to know. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but it did serve me very well. I wanted to start this evening just by explaining briefly what the IMF does. Uh, the IMF is a cooperative of 188 countries. In fact, I got to chair the board last week when we had our 188th member join, which was South Sudan. Uh, And it's a group of 188 countries who come together who pool their resources and pool their money to support each other in times of economic and financial distress. Martin Wolf, uh, who some of you know as a columnist in the Financial Times, wrote a very nice piece for us who said that the IMF doesn't run the world economy. In fact, the IMF is really like a 19th century British constitutional monarch who who only possessed the right to be consulted, the right to encourage, and the right to warn. Of course, an LSE-trained... IMF economist, of which there are many, uh, would not consult, encourage, or warn without remembering the LRC motto, which is to know the cause of things. So what I'm going to try and do this evening is to talk about the cause of things in the world economy. And I'm going to try and organise it around four questions. First, why the current slowdown? Where did it come from? Second, what is causing the crisis of confidence that we witness today? Third, what are the key risks? And fourth, what are the policies to address them? The analysis is actually rooted in the World Economic Outlook, which the IMF just published last month. So if you really want to dig into the details, that's where you need to go. But let me start then uh, with, uh, with my first slide. Okay. Can you still hear me? I'm here. Yes? No, not so good. Okay. How about that? Is that better? Yeah? Okay. All right. So, we thought we had an economic recovery in 2010. We thought after the crisis in 2008, things were getting better, and there there was actually good signs of economic growth in 2010. Since then, it's clear that we don't. Uh, and growth uh, has slowed considerably. In fact, if you look at what the IMF was predicting would happen to the world economy, in April 2011, we thought the world economy would grow by 4.4%. We've now revised that downward to 4 And that reflected a big downward adjustment in the US, but both for 2011 as well as 2012, and also a big downward adjustment for the euro area. Uh, there's also, as you can see, a downward adjustment in Japan. So, what's driving that, uh, that more pessimistic outlook? We think it's two, the confluence of two very important factors. First, what we call balance sheet repair. That's IMF jargon for when, people, when governments, households and firms start spending less because they want, to draw, they want to reduce the debts that they've accumulated over the crisis. There's also been a real crisis of confidence, a lack of confidence in political leaders having economic grip over the issues. And that was driven by clearly what's happening in the Eurozone and worries about whether the Eurozone leaders will actually come to an agreement. But it was also exacerbated by what happened in the US over the summer in the debate over the debt ceiling and the inability of the US political system to, to resolve that issue and a consequent downgrade of the US economy. So, those two factors interacted in very bad ways and have resulted in this slowdown. But let me go a little bit deeper, and I'll start with why the slowdown. Okay. After the, the sort of Lehman crisis, the IMF said there are two kinds of rebalancing that need to happen to restore stability in the world economy. One is that we need to rebalance... From external demand to domestic demand, which basically means the surplus countries in the world had to import more and the deficit countries had to export more. (coughs) We also said there needs to be a rebalancing from public demand to private demand. What does that mean? That countries after the crisis, post Lehman, spent more. All of them, a lot of them, appropriately realized that you you needed fiscal stimulus in order to help the economic recovery. But as that fiscal stimulus is withdrawn, we're going to need more and more of the private sector to fill the gap. The problem is those two forms, those two types of rebalancing that we needed to restore stability and growth in the world economy have stalled. And let me show you you how. Let's start with the fiscal side. These red bars show you how much fiscal adjustment countries around the world need to make. And this is just a selected sample. This is how much deficits need to be reduced by by 2020. And you can see some very big numbers. A country like Greece, for example, needs to cut its deficit by about 15% by 2020, and Japan by about 11 or 12. Now, this blue bar shows you what their current plans are, how much they're planning to cut their deficits by. And you can see that actually some of the the countries under severe stress in the Eurozone are actually have quite big plans to cut their deficits. In contrast, the US and Japan don't have serious plans yet. And these yellow lines show you how much they've actually done this year. And again, you can see some significant progress in some of the Eurozone countries under stress. But again, in Japan and the US, they haven't really even started to get their budget deficits under control. And clearly, markets are worried about that. Let's turn to what's happening to households, and here I'm going to talk about, just as an illustration, U.S. consumers. As we all know, the U.S. consumer, bless them, have been the the sort of engines of global economic growth uh, in recent years, but clearly they're cutting back their spending, and for good reasons. Let me show you why. The green bars show you how many houses are on the market in the U.S., actual inventories of houses on the market. The purple lines show you how many houses are in delinquency or foreclosure. How many houses where basically people are not able to keep up with their mortgage payments. So that's the potential stock of houses on the market. The red line is even more scary and that's what they call underwater mortgages or what we call in the UK negative equity. So there are about 15 to 16 million households in the US now with negative equity. If we look at what people's expectations are about wages, this is a survey that's done which asks people what they expect to happen to their wages in the future. And you can see there's been a dramatic drop in the last year with what people expect to happen to their wages, that they expect wage growth to go to almost zero. So it's not surprising that people are consuming less. Let's turn to what happened what's happened to external balances and trade and first I have to apologize for this slide. What what we have found at the IMF is as the world gets more complex our slides get more complex (laughs) because you have to stick in more countries and more variables. So let me let me just unpack this slide for you. Just focus on the yellow and the red and the blue. Yellow is the US which is the biggest deficit country in the world. The red is uh, the red are the oil exporters and the blue is China, who are the big, the oil exporters and China are the big surplus countries. So, what we said was that surplus countries, need to, surplus countries need to import more, deficit countries need to export more. What happened? In 2009, we thought we were starting to make progress. You can see the yellow and the red and the blue are beginning to shrink. But since then, actually, they've expanded again, and the external rebalancing that we thought was important for uh, to restore stability in the world economy, actually seems to be going the other way. And our projections going forward are that Chinese surpluses are going to grow even more, and U.S. In, and, and, and the oil importers will continue to have big gaps. Now, of course, over time, China has plans to try and reduce its surpluses and rely more on domestic consumption. Um, At the moment, as you probably know, know, the average Chinese household saves about 40% of its income. And the reason they save 40% is because if they get ill or if they get old, there is no public safety net to rely on. There's no public health insurance system and there isn't a reliable public pension scheme. As China begins to introduce public pensions and public health systems, we would expect that people will feel the need to save less and they'll be able to consume more, but that process is going to take a lot of time. So let's turn to the crisis of confidence and what's behind that. This is an illustration, Uh, if anyone really wants to know I'll tell you how these indicators are compiled but that would take me about 10 minutes, Uh, but this is an indicator of credit strain and liquidity strain, but how much financial distress there is in the system. And what it shows is that financial conditions got worse in the run-up to the Lehman crisis, they started to improve, but we're starting to see that they are getting worse in the recent period. What we're also seeing is that risk appetite, again, it got better, sorry, it got, it got risk appetite diminished and it's now going up again, which means that people are more worried about risk. And let me show you what that yeah, This is the, deco- the deterioration in risk appetite in the recent period. What's that meant? It's meant that people have made a sort of exit from what we would call risky assets to, to safer assets. So people are selling Italian and Greek and Spanish bonds, and they're buying Swiss francs, 10-year German bonds, 10-year US treasuries, and gold. And you see that the, the sort of risk, risk aversity in the current financial markets, with this very clear flight to safety and flight to safe havens. We're also seeing spillovers from the uncertainty about what's happening to sovereigns in the in, to governments in government debt in the eurozone <laughs> onto the banks, because the banks hold large amounts of Greek bonds, Portuguese bonds, and so on. So we estimated in a very, um, again, in a a sort of estimated way, what are these stresses imposing on on banks in Europe? From Greek sovereign holdings, we think it's about 60 billion euros, Irish and Portuguese, 80. If you include Belgian, Spanish, and Italian sovereigns, you get up to 200. And if you look at the total kind of high-risk sovereigns, you're somewhere between 200 and 300 billion euros of stresses on European banks. And in fact, this is one of the the big topics that's being discussed by European leaders as we speak uh, in terms of how to strengthen the European banking system from these pressures. Just one more slide on European banks. If you look, this is sort of the 90 top leading European banks and how much capital they have uh, relative to the assets that they hold. So these are the core tier one risk-weighted assets. If you measure that at 6%, what it shows you is that actually since the European Banking Authority recent tests, there's no bank that's got less than 6% capital, so that's good. But if the pressures and the stresses go up, where they need 8% of capital, you've got 18% of banks who who then are in in a bit of trouble. And if you raise that bar to 10%, 63% of banks in Europe are, uh, are, are in trouble. Let me turn to what's happening to emerging markets, because I've been talking about the US and Europe. What's happening in the India's and China's and Brazil's and Russia? For a while, about a year and a half ago, people talked about this term decoupling. That the emerging markets could zoom along and grow really quickly, even if the advanced economies were lagging. I think what, what the recent evidence has shown is that decoupling is a myth. If you look at what happened to capital flows, either bond funds or equity funds, into emerging markets, you can see this huge volatility that we've seen in the recent period, which shows that in the end, the world is just too interconnected for decoupling to be true. That If the advanced economies are, you know, go into a recession, that will have an effect on emerging markets. It may not be catastrophic, but it will have an effect. This is occurring, and these additional pressures are occurring at a time when credit growth in emerging markets has gone up. This graph just shows you uh, how much GDP is growing, how much credit is growing. What you can see is that in most emerging economies, credit is growing faster than GDP. Um, And in terms of our projection of non-performing loans, how much of that credit is actually at risk of being non-performing? Our expectation is, particularly in Asia and Latin America, we expect there to be a growth in non performing loans over time. So let's now turn to where are the risks. <coughs> I won't go into too much detail on this, but the risks are that these three pressures the fiscal pressures, the low growth, the financial sector stresses interact with each other. <coughs> in a very negative way. Just take an example. If governments don't get their budgets in order, uh, that plays out in terms of banks because the banks are holding government debt, so they get under stress. If the banks are under stress, they're going to lend less, which is going to mean lower growth. Lower growth means it's even harder for governments to get their budgets in order because they're not collecting tax revenue. So you can see how you could get into a very negative cycle of, of these processes. And my fancy slide will zoom around for a while. Okay. All right. I guess we're worried in particular about three big risks. One is this so-called global paradox of thrift, uh, which is the, the paradox that if everybody saves at the same time, we get a recession. If households, firms, governments all save simultaneously, you get reduced demand, and there's a real risk of, of, of a further slowdown. The second big risk is around the sustainability of both public debt and household debt in the U.S. and whether that, will, uh, whether that will be resolved. And the third is, of course, the sovereign debt and funding pressures in the euro area that are all over the newspapers these days. So these are the sort of three big, what we call, downside risks uh, that we're worried about. Downside risk just means we're more likely to hear bad news in the future than we're going to hear good news. These downside risks occur though at a time when the world economy is vulnerable in very different ways than it was in 2008. And let me highlight a couple of those vulnerabilities. First, high unemployment. Um, If you look at what's happened to unemployment in the advanced economies, it has absolutely shot up in 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 the recent period. Um, the emerging economies have had a slight upturn, but, but not catastrophic. But in the advanced economies, we've had a period of incredibly high unemployment. And the, more w- the other very worrying vulnerability is what's happened to labor's share in total income. And what you can see is that the share that workers, and go back to Marxist terminology, what workers have taken home out of total GDP relative to what capital gets, has declined sharply in a number of countries. In particular, in Italy, France, the US, and Japan, you know the Occupy Wall Street slogan: "The one percent have gained, and the ninety-nine percent have suffered." This is a little bit the data that underpins—not quite one percent, ninety-nine percent, because it's a slogan—but but what what that sentiment is reflecting is a, is a fact that labor's share of total income has declined in the recent period. Let me talk about another vulnerability, which is inequality. Now, I've highlighted here, uh, the red ones are the countries in the Middle East, and I think the, you know, what's happened in the Arab Spring in the Middle East is a very salutary lesson, including to us at the IMF, of where countries that had actually really good macroeconomic numbers, pretty high growth rates, a fair amount of macroeconomic stability, but we took our eyes off the ball on inequality and unemployment, and of course the consequences are, uh, are well known. But you can see this is a Gini coefficient, which measures inequality. The higher your number is, the more unequal the income is distributed in your economy. Um, and you can see the, the, huge, uh, the huge divergence, the huge spread across countries. I think what's interesting is that recent research at the IMF has actually shown that inequality is... is you know in addition to being you know fair unfair or unjust it's also very bad for macroeconomic stability and very bad for growth we've looked at countries around the world in terms of their growth performance and the links to inequality and what it shows is that it's very easy for countries to have spurts of high economic growth short periods where they grow really quickly but countries that are able to sustain high rates of economic growth for a very long time tend to be more equal the more equal your income distribution, the more likely you are to be able to sustain growth for long periods. You've heard this expression of rising tide raises all ships. What the evidence we've put together shows is that raising smaller boats keeps the tide rising for everyone, big and small. So someone uh, once said to me that the IMF is paid to worry. So I hope I've gotten worried. <laughs> Um, let me now turn to uh, to the policies that uh, that could address these issues. We have said the world economy is entering a very dangerous phase, but there is hope, uh, and let me uh, outline where that is. We need collective action to preserve stability and sustain global growth, and that collective action can take a number of forms. In terms of it it needs to restore confidence and it needs to restore people's sense that there is a path of growth going forward. Let me unpack that a little bit uh, bit more. Let me start with public finances and budgets and fiscal policy. On fiscal policy, we need, I'm going to call it the Goldilocks policy, we need Fiscal adjustment that is not too fast, not too slow, but just right. And what that means in each country is quite different. Some countries can afford to spend a bit more now uh, in order to try and get growth back up. Other countries, say for example like the U.S., Other countries cannot because they're under so much fiscal pressure, so countries like Greece or Italy have to actually show very credibly, very quickly, that they can get their budgets under control. So we need credible medium term plans, there's no one size fits all. A lot of countries can actually do quite a lot to restore fiscal credibility in the medium term dealing with things like pensions, healthcare costs, and some of the longer-term fiscal pressures that they're under, while still allowing some room to manoeuvre in the short term while growth is, is slow. Let me say something about monetary policy. And here, on the advanced economies, we are not worried about inflation. I think at the moment we feel that monetary policy needs to be supporting growth, dealing with, you know, dealing with any risk through other regulatory policy, but be prepared, and central banks need to be prepared to use unconventional measures to support growth. In the emerging market economies, I think it's a more nuanced position, which is they need to be ready to tighten, because some of them are seeing inflation pressures. but they need to be ready to shift if growth slows down considerably, and they need to adopt more lax, more, more easy monetary policy. So it's a more a vigilant stance on monetary policy. Let me turn to financial and structural policies. I think in the US, we really need to deal with the issues around the housing market in the US and what's happening with US households. In Europe, the big issue is around the banks and the link between the banks and their holdings of sovereign debt. And in both the US and Europe, we need much better policies on unemployment, on growth and enhancing supply. Let me say something about the emerging markets, where the issues for them are uh, are more around basically managing the risks to them. They need to make progress on on risk management and dealing with potential vulnerabilities through structural reform, through dealing with their banking system, um, and, and be ready with monetary policies as a first line of defense and fiscal policies thereafter if they need to. What about the low-income countries? Actually, the low-income countries have done relatively well post-Lehman crisis. Um, They've been able to draw on the fiscal room they had, partly because a lot of them had benefited from debt relief, and so they were able to sustain pretty decent growth rates throughout this crisis. But the problem for low-income countries is that they've drawn down their buffers. And if there's another growth slowdown, they haven't got much room to maneuver. So they need to rebuild the buffers that they've drawn down since 2008. And some of them are benefiting from relatively high commodity prices. So now's the time to actually use those revenues from oil, from higher coffee prices and and cocoa prices to invest incredibly well in policies that are going to deliver higher levels of education, infrastructure, and growth in the future. So, let me say something about what needs to happen on global imbalances. And again, I'll just simplify here, but really the US needs to export more to sustain growth. Europe, the emerging market Asia needs to shift more toward internal demand, uh, assisted by the kinds of structural reforms, pension reforms, healthcare reforms that we need in order to enable them to raise their consumption level. That's it. Um, And our estimates are that if we actually adopt this set of policies to deal with global imbalances, fiscal policy and monetary policy, a package like that could raise growth by 1.5% by 2016 if there is this sort of collective action taken. I know 1.5% doesn't sound very big, Um, But in global terms, uh, if you could raise global economic growth by 1.5%, that would be actually quite a transformative number. So, I hope that uh, I've given you a sense of the cause of things uh, in the world economy, and I hope that I've given you a sense of the other thing that LSE's founders wanted when they created this place was to bring practical solutions to the biggest policy challenges of our time. None of what I've described will be easy. Um, No country can solve this on its own. But that's why we have international cooperation. And I think what this analysis shows is that we need it today more than ever. I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
0: Right, well, thank you very much for that uh, inspiring lecture, a bit depressing. Um, (laughs) Sounds a bit like climate change to me. We all know what we should be doing, but uh, getting agreement across countries doesn't appear to be as easy as it might be. So we turn to your questions, please, and we will take questions three at a time, so to speak. And we want questions rather than lecturettes, because we have about 30 minutes. So a gentleman's hand went up over there. Uh, and please wait for the mic. And when you have the mic, if you could just uh, tell us your name and affiliation, that would be wonderful. Uh, my name is Ramin, a member of public. You said uh, developing countries need to uh, use monetary policy to deal with the inflationary pressures. But some countries, like Brazil, the inflation is going up because of large capital inflows, which is causing inflation and exchange rate appreciation. Don't you think it's time to... Mm use capital controls as well? Second question. on <laughs> over this side. Dun, dun, dun. Chap in the middle, 15 rows back. And as, who's for the third question in this trip, to Hi, I'm Branson Lee. I'm, sorry. Far away. Uh, I'm Branson Lee. I'm a first year at the LSE. I want to ask, uh, will there be any reformation of the IMS voting shares, especially how the US can, well, basically repeal any resolution the IMF tries to pass? And there's one question down here. Yes, lady that. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for a great presentation. I feel if you'd be my lecturer at the LSE, maybe I would be an economist by now. <laughs> um, sadly, I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm a graduate in development management for the LSE and um, I'd just like to ask you a question. You've described the trend of the growing inequality in, in the share of total income, especially in European countries. And uh, I just wondered if you could expand a little bit on how you reverse this trend. So how does mm-hmm. 1% can turn into a much larger percent, even in the mottoes? So if you could just give us a more comments on this. Thank you. Okay, okay those are great questions. Uh, let me start with capital controls. In fact, oh yes, should I turn this off? Actually, do you mind if I stand? I might just project better. Um, On capital controls, um, in fact, um, Brazil has introduced capital controls precisely because, as you say, they've been subjected to these big capital inflows and they're worried about inflation domestically. and the IMF now has a much more nuanced view on capital controls. As you probably know in the past, the IMF was very much at the forefront of encouraging countries to liberalise their capital, their capital regimes, um, but in fact, tonight, just after this lecture, which is why I'll have to dash off, I'm going to Iceland, which was actually the first uh, IMF programme in which we actually encouraged the authorities to introduce capital controls after the huge financial crisis that they faced at the beginning of all of this crisis. So we are open, I think, to countries introducing capital controls. It obviously depends on how you do it. There are some, you know, there are, very, there are many different ways to do capital controls, but it is, you know, a, a something you need in the toolbox in moments of crisis. So definitely. On the uh, voting shares in the IMF, in fact, we've just completed a, uh, a review of the voting shares, which resulted in a, in a movement of shares of 6% away from the advanced economies toward the emerging market economies, with China as the major beneficiary. And we're just about to start the process of agreeing what the formula will be for allocating voting shares in the IMF for the future. So this is a kind of ongoing thing. We've, We've made, I think, some progress to reflect new realities. But the, the agreement on the formula for the future will obviously determine how voting shares will evolve in, in, in future as well. So it will be a dynamic process. You know, The voting shares are allocated. At the moment, the formula relies a lot on per capita income, but it's an ongoing debate as to what that formula should be. And so as countries' per capita incomes evolve and grow, their voting shares in the IMF will, will evolve and grow. And then lastly, on inequality, um, it's interesting. I think um, you know, when I learned economics <laughs> way back when, we were actually taught that inequality was good for growth. Because at the time, we thought, remember the Lewis model? Those are the old people in the room? <laughs> where, we thought, um, you know, where we thought that you have to have inequality so that people accumulate capital, and then they can invest that capital in order to create jobs, and then there'll be more employment. That's what we were taught. But that was in a world where capital was really what mattered. In today's world, actually, it's human capital that matters a lot more than physical capital. So the policies to address inequality are, are, are really about investing much more in education and, 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 and enabling people to take advantage of more technological and skill-based growth. And in fact, that, that change in growth dynamics is a big part of what's driving inequality, that you know the returns to workers who have high High skills has gone up, and workers in traditional manufacturing have, are seeing their wages decline in many countries—not all countries, but in many countries. So policies around education, policies around social safety nets and unemployment insurance, um, and uh, and progressive taxation—you know—many countries' tax systems have gotten more regressive in recent years than, than than the opposite. And progressive taxation is part of the story. Good.
0: a question. In the um, my name is Stuart Valentine. I'm an alumnus of LSE from 1964, so I have been through quite a number of crises in the past. However, the first question question—it's a long-term one. You made the point about deficit, uh, surplus countries being persuaded to import more. That has been a continuing problem for the last 50, 60 years. How on earth do we persuade those countries, which are or feel themselves to be in a strong position, to in effect weaken themselves in order to help the world economy? And what chance now any more than it has been in the past? And one slightly flippant observation, if I, if, if I may, if the IMF is paid to worry, you must be extraordinarily well paid at the moment. <laughs> Next question, please. Uh, <laughs> right at the back, in the middle. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, comments from me also. My name is Richard Siegel. I work for a company called Jefferies in London. Um, I'm not really sure what the, all the fuss is about the bank capital that would require a lecture rather than a question. My question is, is there any uh, revised assessment about the IMF, about the desirability of a, a global trans, uh, transaction tax on financial transactions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And another question at the back, for the lady in black.
1: Well, hello, my name is Christina Scriven. Um, I was hoping if you could speak a bit about the role of the Chinese currency, and because uh, you mentioned it had been, that you said it was undervalued um, in the context of the global imbalances, and whether... Revaluing the currency might also affect the rest of Asia and the role of um, the kind of uh, twin surplus. Or by that I mean that there's um, a, a deficit with the US and a surplus in the other Asian countries. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you
1: take those? Okay on the um, issue of the surplus countries and I might take that one along with the question on China's exchange rate um, clearly uh, I think the issue is that just because you're running a surplus it doesn't mean you're weaker or stronger and I think that, that in the end countries will rarely take policy decisions just for the global good I and mean, we've seen that in climate change as well um, But I think in the case of surplus countries, um, you know, say in the case of China, if they allow their domestic consumers to consume more, they will be better off, uh, and their living standards will improve, and they will benefit from having a healthcare system and health insurance that doesn't require them to have these incredibly high savings rates. So I think because there are now some pretty important domestic drivers for those changes, uh, I think there's more likelihood. I think the, 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 and the exchange rate obviously has a role in that rebalancing. I think the challenge is going to be, it's going to take time, and we need this rebalancing to happen pretty quickly, and as you could see from my graphs on external rebalancing, it's just not happening fast enough. Um, so I think that's the biggest worry. And in terms of uh, being paid to worry, you know, I wish, I wish we were paid in proportion to the worry. <laughs> <laughs> Our salaries are, you know, they sort of fix them, unfortunately, and they don't. Uh, they don't. It's not linked to the degree of worry, but uh, but it is a worrying time. On the um, financial transactions tax, um, I think we are certainly of the view that the financial sector is undertaxed because it is not subjected to VAT in those countries. So we think there is a need to redress that. Uh, we recently did a paper uh, on how to do this and I think we think the, the best solution is something called a financial activities tax which, tax which taxes profits and wages of the financial sector rather than activity per se um, because we think that's a more efficient tax. Um, and there's quite a good paper on that financial activities tax uh, on our website if you're interested in it. But, but we do think there's an issue uh, and we think there is a, there's a, there's a slightly better alternative which is, ec- which is economically more efficient and actually goes to the taxation of profits and wages, which is, a, which is really what you want to tax, which makes it more similar to a value-added tax than just taxing general transactions.
0: Okay. Two questions down here. And Chris: Thanks. Matthew Blair from Emerging Markets. Um, a question. So you talk about the importance of greater global cooperation. Uh, but also have kind of I mean, just in your final answer, you said that countries already you know, take decisions purely for the global good, I mean given all of the kind of contradictory directions in which the global economy is, con- economy is pulling, where's the leadership going to come from in order to kind of you know, secure this cooperation should it come from the IMF and if so does the IMF need more money <laughs> sorry, that's three questions in one there was another question over the- My name is Giovanni, a student of uh, European politics. Uh, I've got two quick questions. Uh, The
1: first one, uh, you talk about structural reforms. Uh, What would you suggest the the Italian uh, government at the moment? (laughs) apart from pension reforms. And the second one is, uh, how do you assess uh, value, the
0: work of Christine Lagarde?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You'd like me to comment on my boss. Okay, fine. (laughs) In public, yeah. <laughs> she's great. Actually, she's really great. I will um, answer
0: that. I will answer a lady, that question. Of course, when Italy is raised, there will be no uh, glances between the uh, people on the platform.
1: <laughs> um. Hello, my name is Anise Kisselbash from Global Development Innovation. Thank you for a great um, talk. Um, Richard Koo, the... Um, uh, I believe he 's the chief economist of Nomura. He argues that the current fiscal stimulus um, is is actually reversing growth, and um, he, he suggests the, not, uh, the uh, not, not, sorry not fiscal stimulus the fiscal austerity measures is actually t- slowing down growth and instead argues that requires more fiscal stimulus and that there 's a lot of correlations between what's what happened in Japan during the '90s, mm. which was a balance sheet recession it 's happening it 's occurring at the moment um, i'd just like to know if you have any comments on that mm-hmm. Okay, in terms of um, where's the leadership going to come from, I mean, I think at the moment uh, the best place for some of that leadership globally is probably the G20. Um, you know, the G20 constitutes about 80% of the world economy between them. Uh, it's probably the best forum we've got at the moment for resolving global economic issues. Um, so I think that's probably the, the place to look for that leadership. Um, I think the IMF obviously has a role to play. As I said, you know, we're a cooperative, we're owned by 188 countries, and if they want us to do something, we'll do it. Um, so, so if they want us to play a greater role in supporting the, this, the global recovery, you know, we would obviously be ready to do that, and that role can be in terms of advice, policy advice, technical support, or, uh, or financing. In terms of Italy, I will refer you to our recent Article 4 report on Italy, which is uh, our kind of current assessment of the Italian economy, which has quite a long list of what's needed in terms of reforms in Italy. Um, and I think the biggest issue is Italy, in Italy is the fact that the Italian economy has not grown in per capita terms for a decade. Um, you know, as someone said to me, Italy used to grow about five percent a year in the 50s. It grew about four percent a year in the 60s. It grew three percent a year in the 70s. Two percent a year in the 80s. One percent a year in the 90s. And since then, we've had no no growth in per capita terms. And that reflects the fact that there are a whole set of structural policies around labour markets, the business environment, the degree to which certain professions are regulated. Um, It's that set of issues that is the key issue, I think, in Italy. And if you really want more detail, I would uh, have a look at the Article for it's quite readable. Um, uh, And then in terms of Christine Lagarde, actually, I think she's she's doing great. I mean,
0: she's (laughs) (laughs) It's true!
1: (laughs) She's, you know, she came into the IMF at an incredibly difficult moment and at an incredibly difficult time for the world economy. Um, and you know, she's gripped it, she's provided leadership she's provided huge leadership on this Eurozone crisis, in fact she's there now as we speak um, and, uh, and I think she's, you know I think we're lucky to have her <laughs> she would say that, wouldn't she um, and then on the issue of fiscal stimulus, it's interesting there are uh, I've seen more papers now from bank analysts saying How can Italy avoid being Japan? How can the US avoid being Japan? It's kind of become the negative model of what happens when a country kind of retrenches, uh, well, has a huge debt and doesn't deal with any of the underlying issues. I think, though, our view is that um, whether countries should have fiscal stimulus at the moment is very country-specific. Some countries can afford to and have room, uh, and other countries don't. But I think for those countries that have some room to maneuver, uh, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. I think the, the really important thing, though, for credibility is to show that you've got a plan to get your budget under control in the medium term. So if you're allowing more spending in the shorter term, you need to be able to show how you're going to get that under control in five <coughs> or ten years. Because um, without that medium-term consolidation and plan, the markets will really worry about what you're doing. So I think it's that, it's that balance that has to be struck.: yep. Mary, in the front row, please. Hello. Um, actually Hang on.: my, Hang on. Wait. my question really is a follow-up to the last. because what if you can't strike that balance? I mean, I don't see how a country like Greece can
0: ever get out of its imbalances simply through reductions, mm. and I'm not
1: even sure that the kind of stimulus that the US and the UK can offer is enough. So what if there is a real contradiction that you can't do rebalancing, and the problem is the financial markets. Don't you have to do something about financial markets so we can actually have be a little bit more indebted or have a little bit more fiscal stimulus? Mm. Mm.
0: Here. now if anyone's got a 6 o'clock lecture or a 6 o'clock class um, you know, ease out uh, <laughs> while the questions are being asked so we have one over here and then we have the gentleman in the middle there
1: Hi, um, my name is William, I'm a student here at the LSE I was wondering what your views were on the limitation of growth, because it seems growth uh, is the solution to everything or austerity measures of both of them then what do you think about whether points where
0: we just can't have any more consumption, uh, prices are gonna go up if we're gonna be realistic? So what's your views on limitation of growth? Because it seems to be the only solution to our problems. Sounds like the Club of Rome.
1: Yeah, it does.
0: And the gentleman, some, yes, uh, thank you. (coughs) Michael Sharpston, public. Um, What about the problem of banks doing regulatory arbitrage? And tied to that, and I apologize for it sounding a little rude, what about banks' ability to buy up the governments uh, because of the contributions they make? I'm thinking of the $29 insurance cost that disappeared in Congress at the last minute. And very technical but i'm sure you're
1: I'm sure I can answer it okay um, in terms of mary 's question about whether just how if you can 't strike the balance um, I mean I think Greece is a little bit different uh, and that 's why Greece is being discussed as we speak because I think Greece is, is is a little bit different but I think you know there are a number of countries who have adjusted and done pretty well. Um, you know, Ireland is a good example, Iceland is a good example, Latvia is a good example. There are quite a few countries that have managed to get that balance, but it's it's, um, it's tough, and, you know, there are tough years in the interim where growth is slow, public spending is cut, um, but I think it's the, the, the key issues, especially in the advanced economies, the, the really difficult issues tend to be the longer-term ones around ageing populations, growing pension liabilities, growing health care costs, and figuring out how you can get those longer-term issues on a sustainable footing. Is um, Governments that present credible plans around that the the markets tend to then give you a lot of room to maneuver in the short term if they believe you've got a credible medium term plan. And I think that's the that's the that's what countries who are facing this kind of pressure have to do. And ignoring putting forward a plan for medium term fiscal your medium term fiscal plans can't buy credibility. In the end, if you spend more today and you don't have a plan for the future the markets just punish you, and then you're kind of doomed. So I think that's got to be a big part of the story. On the limits to growth, um, I, um, in my previous life, I used to work in international development, so I um, spent a lot of time worrying about poverty. And I, uh, I guess I just because of that, I can't accept a no-growth scenario, because there's still a lot of people in the world who need a lot of growth in order to reach accept, you know, acceptable levels of, of, of living standards. So I don't buy the the kind of club of Rome and we've got to stop growing, and you know everybody go back to back to basics. Um, but I do think we have to think a lot about the sustainability of growth, and that you know takes us back to the issues around climate change and environmental taxes and all that set of issues, which we definitely need to do more on. Um, but uh, you know when i've you know, I spent a lot of time at the IMF looking at things like scenarios of macroeconomic stability and debt sustainability of different countries and all the rest of it. And what, if you look at enough of those scenarios of, you know, projecting how some country's going to do over the next 10 years, the thing that hits you the most is that the the variable that makes the most difference is growth. (laughs) You know, if you're growing, actually fiscal adjustments are really easy. If you're growing, you can spend more on lots of good things. If you're growing, your debt is actually very easily serviceable. Um, there is, you know, it's so hugely important in terms of making modern economies tick that I think we need we need to do a lot more to understand how to get countries to grow, but admittedly, looking very carefully at the sustainability issues. And then lastly, on banks and regulatory arbitrage um, and political influencing. I mean, clearly. After the crisis, we made some progress on improving the regulations around the banking systems around the world. Some. But it's an (coughs) unfinished agenda. Um, You know, we made some progress on things like tax havens and we made some progress under the G20 on kind of trying to find more common standards. The Basel III regulations will impose some commonality of standards. So, (coughs) you know, it's we're still, we made some progress, but we're really halfway there, and the issues around regulatory arbitrage, and the issues around um, political influence of banks needs, you know, that is another area where global cooperation is necessary, because the solutions to be binding have to be global, and you're more likely to address some of these uh, difficult political issues if you have a global discussion I think rather than try to do it nationally because as you imply the national discussions get very distorted
0: okay. questions uh, gentlemen in the middle one two three four five six rows back two over there Fine. we'll take the next time Please, fire away. Uh, My name's Howard Miller. I'm a member of public. Um, In the last uh, five, ten years, we've seen quite a few low-income countries, um, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, graduating from IMF lending programs. You know, Uganda, Senegal, Tanzania, these countries um, now have um, PSIs rather than borrowing from the IMF. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of these countries are now facing, you know, high inflation, weak exports, weak FDI. Um, do you anticipate the IMF might have to step back in um, in these kind of yeah. so-called uh, better performers to kind of um, get them through this crisis? And there are a couple of questions over here. We're <coughs> uh, from the public. Um, do, do you think is any danger of the uh, double dips resection? Especially in uh, advanced economy. And there's another question in that vicinity. Uh, has that question evaporated? Okay, we have a questioner over here. The chap in the black, and we'll take you next, if we may. Um, thank you for the presentation, uh, Sherry Emerson from uh, the LSE. Um, I was quite struck to to hear uh, that uh, the IMF considers uh, inequality in labour's position in, in the share of national income as being a, a driving factor, a driving risk factor. So I'm not. Oh, you're not, you're not hearing me. Oh, sorry. Um, we'll start again. I just wanted to know um, what do you think is driving uh, the diminishing share of uh, of labour in uh, in national incomes over the last one years?
1: Okay. Okay. Um, on the question about African low-income countries, it's true, it's interesting, I mean, I think it's 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 a good thing that so many African low-income countries have adjusted so well in the crisis and I think it shows how important giving them debt relief was because they had room to maneuver and they could spend a little more and they could take on a bit more debt. Um, and I mean, we still have quite a lot of program countries in Africa, but it's also really great that more and more African countries are shifting to wanting what what, what are essentially just monitoring programs in the IMF. They don't need our money. They want to have a relationship. They want our missions to go every three to six months to talk about economic policies, to discuss a kind of framework for macro policy. And it's really great that they don't need the money and but still want to have a dialogue and a relationship because it's helpful to them in formulating policy. Do I think that many of them will have to come back to the IMF for funding? I hope not. Um, the good news is, is that because we've got quite good dialogues with many of these countries. We know their policies. If they do need money, we'll be able to respond very quickly. Um, And if they've got good policies in place, we'll be able to support them. It's one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about these days is what we call crisis bystanders. You know, countries who've got pretty decent economic policies but who, because of wider crises in the wider world, suddenly are derailed. Uh, in terms of their own own prospects and we've been trying to think about how do we support crisis bystanders with with more flexible instruments and enabling them to draw much more flexibly from the IMF without too many conditions or policy changes because their policies are fundamentally sound and these are temporary. So we're we're looking at that, we want to be responsive, we hope they don't need it but if they do that's why being a member of the IMF is is an advantage. In terms of the double-dip issue, um, we're not projecting a double-dip as yet. There are some analysts out there who are. Uh, there are some analysts out there who are predicting uh, that, that the Eurozone will go into recession uh, in, in future. We're not yet. Uh, you know, we're, we're all waiting to see what happens tonight at the uh, Leaders' Summit. I think that will be a very important signal as to what, what, uh, what's likely to happen in the Eurozone economies. Um, but we'll update our forecasts uh, in the new year and we'll uh, let you know. And then, <laughs> and then in terms of uh, inequality, what's driving it, I think there's a multi- there are multiple factors. One is this shift toward higher skill technolo- technology based uh, labour markets where you know, modern labour markets reward people with higher skills much more than those with lower skills and that differentiation plays out then in higher inequality. Um, the second thing is uh, what's happened in terms of spending on safety nets uh, and progressive tax policies in many countries, and that's de- and that's changed, uh, and that's made the situation worse. But did I not get your question?
0: It was, it was about the share of labour as a whole in national income.
1: Yes, yes. So inequality is in, one thing, between labour, Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it—it—it—I ref- it, it, think these factors are are behind it because the reward. Oh, I see what you mean. You're saying the 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 total labor share rather than the share within high skill versus low skill workers. I understand. I understand. Yeah, it's a difficult question. I mean, I think part of it is um, must be around competition policies and you know where competition policies have gone and whether they're benefiting capital or labor. Um, but I think it's something that we need to do a bit more research on to understand what's, whether this is a, this is political, this reflects levels of different, diff, you know, what's happening to trade union membership across different countries around the world, um, or whether there's some structural factors behind that. But I think we, we need to understand that better.
0: OK, there's a lady in the sixth room there, if we could have a mic. And... I think we'll have a gentleman in the white shirt. there. There's a lady here, Sorry, yeah. right beside you.
1: Good evening. Uh, my name is Anchal. I'm an MSc student here at LSE. Uh, what are your views on the growth versus inflation trade-off? And is
0: the current uh, anti-inflationary stance adopted by the Central Bank in India the most rational thing to do right now in these tough times? Mm. And there's a gentleman in a white shirt there. Hello, thanks for the presentation. I'm not going to ask you about your boss. I'm going <laughs> to ask you about the IMF. Um, what is? Well, what are the things you don't like about working in the IMF?
1: That I don't like about working yep. in the IMF?
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. As an institution. And we're running... a <laughs> towards the end of the session, so I'm going to exercise Chairman's prerogative and ask my question, uh, which will be the last one asked this evening, I'm afraid, and that is, I understand, Mehmet, uh, that uh, part of your portfolio are the Arab Spring countries, mm. and what, what, what and I realise it's quite distinct from the uh, title of your talk, but mm. what's the IMF tape, what is it going to do uh, in order to help those countries along? Okay.
1: Um, in terms of the inflation growth trade-off, I mean I think it I think we now realize that that is a much more complicated relationship than certainly when I was in graduate school and we all learned the Phillips curve and thought that was a sort of simple trade-off so um, in terms of the specifics of India, difficult to comment on a specific country, but I think um, I think our view is that monetary authorities in the emerging markets, like India, need to be vigilant, and they need to see what happens and be ready to change their policies if there is a further global slowdown. So I think it's more wait and see in terms of what we think should happen. What don't I like in the IMF? The coffee is not very nice, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's. Uh, it's actually a pretty interesting place to work. I kind of would recommend it. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, it's like all, you know, actually it's not that bureaucratic. I've worked in more bureaucratic places. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's a lot to do at the moment. I think that's the toughest thing, to be completely honest. Uh, We've got a lot on our plate. Um, And... uh, and we have to move very fast. And it's actually, in the end, it's quite a small organization. It's only 2,400 people. It's not very big to cover the whole world. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think it would, be, it would be wonderful if we just had the luxury of a bit more time to deal with some of the issues we're dealing with. That's the toughest thing at the moment. Um, and then in terms of the Arab Spring, I think the Arab Spring, um, I mean, first to say, I think it's been a very important lesson for us, the Arab Spring. And I think the IMF is kind of taking that to heart and realizing that we really, you know, we can't, that macroeconomic stability, uh, you know, if you have huge political instability, the macroeconomic stability that you achieve isn't worth very much because you lose it. Um, So we need to be paying attention to these wider issues and particularly around employment and inequality. So that's a very important lesson. I think, in terms of what we want to want to, what we think has to happen going forward, I think the biggest challenge for the countries in the Arab Spring is how are they going to balance the very intense short-term pressure they're under to spend more, because they've got young people in the streets who've, you know, demanded revolutions and justice and jobs, and it's very important to remember, you know, that, that Tunisian young man who burned himself. Uh, in frustration because he was being harassed by the authorities for his cart where he was trying to sell fruit which started this whole thing. That was a protest about a really lousy business environment. <coughs> you know, he just wanted to have his cart and have a job and, and earn a bit of money and he, in desperation because the regulatory authorities in Tunisia were so oppressive and the police kept pushing around in the market he committed suicide. Um, and so, creating a, a business environment and a place where people have opportunities is, is, is so much at the heart of what started this process. But anyway, what I think is going to be the biggest challenge is how do you respond to those demands while uh, maintaining macro stability? And I think the immediate knee jerk reaction of many countries in the region, both the ones that have had revolutions and those that have not had revolutions, has been to increase wages of public sector workers and to increase subsidy expenditure. And I think that's quite problematic. It's problematic because when you increase wages of existing public sector workers, they actually already have jobs and they're actually relatively well paid compared to all those unemployed young people on the street. So you've spent your money on creating, enhancing the status of public sector workers um, rather than creating new jobs. And you've increased expenditure on subsidies, which in most countries in the region are highly inequitable and very regressive in terms of who benefits from them. So most the biggest expenditures are on energy subsidies, most of which are consumed by the rich, not by the poor. And so you know, I understand the political pressures why, they, why that decision was taken. But I think in the medium term, we have to find another way to create new jobs for these young populations. And we have to find a way to get subsidy expenditures under control and very targeted on the needs of poor people. One of the tragedies of what's happened in the region is that uh, most of these unemployed are, are educated. Uh, we had a a meeting at the IMF with youth leaders from around the world, and there was this young Tunisian woman who is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records as the youngest published author in the world. She published her first book at age seven. She was a pretty clever girl, right? And the anger that she felt um, about... She said, we had a... You know, there's a social contract. The deal was, you told us, if we got educated, we'd get a job. And what you see in the Middle East is that the more educated they are, the less likely they are to find a job. And that's a failure of a social contract and we need to find a way to address that in terms of the way the labour market works, the way the business environment works and how the education system works. So those I think are the big challenges.
0: Now, ladies and gentlemen, before I present a formal vote of thanks to Nemet for coming to the LSE and speaking to us, may I ask you to stay in your seats because we will be leaving Uh, as you have to get the 8.30 plane to Iceland and it's the last plane (laughs) and so we'll dash up out there and find a cab, but before I do that, thank you so much for fitting the LSE into your busy schedule, I hope it's been pleasant to come back to the, uh, at least the uh, better facilities which we're offering now Uh, it's been wonderful to uh, listen to your lecture, very impressive and colourful slides and Uh, Thank you, the audience, for some uh, interesting questions which have given us a real opportunity to explore many areas around the current crisis. So thank you so much.